Today, I'm joined by Willem Middlecoop, founder of the Commodity Discovery Fund and author of The Big Reset. Willem, welcome to Forward Guidance. Well, great to be uh, on your show, finally. So, thanks. Yeah, Willem, you are uh, you have a lot of views on fiat money, on gold, on Bitcoin. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about your journey in sort of learning about finance and how you developed the analysis that you have about fiat, which fiat money, which is you know somewhat orthogonal to the mainstream view. I was a journalist actually in the 1980s and 1990s, and uh, I was um, interested in the financial system. I was uh, started to invest in real estate in the 1990s. I bought some apartments in in the Netherlands, uh, rented them out uh, to expats, and, and that was quite a new, um, well, a, a, a new way for me to invest and, and think about money, learn about money. And I didn't put any of my own savings in those uh, um, investments. So I had mortgages. It was very easy in, in the Netherlands to get mortgages for 120% of your uh, of, of, of the, um, the value of the apartment. So, and, and then I started to learn what leverage is and uh, it was great on the way up and uh, these investments, uh, real estate was rising five, 10, 15% a year. But um, as soon as I had collected eight or nine apartments, I thought this leverage could be killing me on the way down. So I really started to study the financial system, the history of financial markets, the history of uh, money. And then I became quite scared. So this was in the late 90s. And actually, I, I, I started to take profit on my real estate in the early 2000s and started to hedge myself by buying into gold and silver investments. So I've been, I've been worried about uh, the monetary system, a fiat money system for, for almost 20 years. And uh, as I learned more and more about the system, I became increasingly worried. I wrote a few books uh, on this topic. Uh, the Big Reset is, is, is the, has been translated to seven languages, so that's the best known. And I always predicted that one day we could end up into this major crisis into the monet in, in, in this monetary system. And what do you think are the fundamental weaknesses, as you see them, of our current fiat money system? And is there a time in history where you look back and you say, aha, that, it may not have been perfect, but it was a more stable, a more robust system than, than we have now? Well, when you study monetary history, um, you learn um, that uh, we've had several hundreds of, of, of uh, well, currencies in the last few hundred years. Um, so there was even an appendix in the big reset, uh, which we published, um, and this appendix shows that over the last two, three hundred years, more than 100 currencies failed, and they all failed due to the fact that uh, they were fiat systems, there wasn't any gold backing anymore, so it is a guarantee that a fiat money system fails in the end. So. Um, most people are surprised when they, they hear this. So it's, it's not that difficult to predict that the current monetary system will have a, a lot of stress uh, once the debasement of currency um, gets into a higher gear. And that's what happened after the Lehman crash first in 2008. And now after the start of Corona um, uh, early 2020, we've seen an incredible uh, amount of money being added to the balance sheets of central banks. And 
this is the reason why uh, inflation is picking up now. So the system it really becomes stressed. And once a system gets stressed, the central banks can only do one thing and lower interest rates towards zero. And, and then, then they're, they're trapped. And that, that's, we, that's where we find ourselves now. And that, that's very, it's a very dangerous situation. So if you had to sort of say that the fiat monetary system is a dam and you see various cracks in the dam, which would you say is the is the greatest fissure and is the is the most likely to burst? Would it be inflation or would it just be the the, the level of, of debt? Um, and and also, what what does debasement mean? I believe it's you know a term used for you had a gold coin and you debase it by decreasing the the the, the quality, quantity the percentage the composition of gold in a coin. What does debasement even mean in you know when you have fiat currency? Is it is it a metaphor that's uh, you know no, no longer applies? If you study the anchor of uh, monetary systems, then uh, you'll see that every 60, 70, 80, 90 years, there's a new world reserve currency. So we used to have the British Empire, and then the pound sterling was the main world reserve currency. That ended at the start of the First World War. Uh, before that, we had the Dutch Gilda, and we had the Spanish uh, pesos. And so that... Every, every generation, um, we see a new world reserve currency. And what we often see is these new re world reserve currencies, they start strong. Um, for example, at the end of the Second World War, when we had the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944, the U.S. proposed a plan to use the U.S. dollar as the, as the, as the anchor for the world's financial system. But they promised the world that the dollar would be as good as gold. You know, it was backed by gold. And over time, the U.S. printed too many dollars and they lost half of their gold because they had to promise um, in 1944 at Bretton Woods that other countries could always exchange surplus dollars for, for gold. And this happened quite a bit in the 1960s. So in 1971, President Nixon, he, he chose to, uh, to close the gold window. So from that moment on, the dollar was, was not, not, no longer backed by anything uh, tangible. And we saw this incredible increase of debts and, and, and an awful money creation. And this has been ongoing for the last 50 years. So the debasement of currency means that the currency is no longer backed by anything valuable. And, and um, central bankers and, and commercial bankers, you know, they, they, they always need more money. They always want to print more money. They always want to see more stimulus, especially when, that, when the crisis occurs. And, and, and in the end, you end up with, with a currency which, which has lost literally 98% uh, of its value since the start of the Federal Reserve in 1913. And then you reach a point that people get, get, are getting scared and they only want to invest in, in, in anything the government can't print. And that's when we see this huge inflation. First, it starts with asset inflation, and now we see general inflation. And, and, and that's, that's the end of the road. And, and that, does, that doesn't mean that, that everything will collapse. Central bankers, they know this as well. So you, you need to plan a monetary reset. You need to plan to bring gold back into the system or, or, or do anything else uh, to, to bring trust back into the system. Mm. And tell us about this monetary reset, as you call it, the big reset. What, what does it entail? Well, there are three main problems uh, within the current system. So we need to find a new anchor for world's monetary system. 
And um, I predicted in 2014, when I published the big reset, that around 2020, uh, we, would need, we would need to organize a new Bretton Woods conference to discuss this. Uh, actually, the IMF published, uh, it's still on their website, that, uh, that they published this in, in around 2020, that there's a need for a new Bretton Woods co conference. They actually said it's a new Bretton Woods moment. We had Mark Carney, who was the governor of the Bank of England, making his speech, famous speech now in July 2019, that um, it was time to find a successor for the dollar. So um, it, it, it's, it's quite clear when you follow the signs and when you follow the insiders that uh, a successor for the dollar is needed. Um, look, look at what happened with the, uh, with the national debt, the US national debt. It was around 10 trillion in 2000, and now it's over 30 trillion. So we also need debt restructuring. So that's the second part of a monetary reset. So finding a new anchor, um, uh, we need debt restructurings worldwide. And I think we need a dollar devaluation. And a dollar devaluation actually is a gold revaluation. And um, we can get this gold revaluation uh, in two ways. Um, we can see it through the market forces. Uh, actually, it's happening as we speak. Eh? Gold is going up uh, back to the old highs of around 2000. But we can also see a gold revaluation being planned and organized by central bankers. This has been done before in the 1930s. Uh, the US um, devalued the dollar as well. So these, these developments, I think when we look back in 2030, we look back, um, we'll we'll come to the conclusion that, that a lot has changed in, in the last 10 years. And we're in the middle of this process. But once you're in this process, often um, you, you don't see the forest uh, because you, you're, you're surrounded by the trees. And so people always ask me, when will the reset start? I think we're in the process already. What would have to happen to be sort of a, a catalyst for it? One seems to be getting closer and closer. So if, if inflation is really picking up and is reaching a point in, in which the yearly inflation is, is running towards 10% or even higher, I call this um, a superinflation. So everyone is always talking about uh, hyperinflation, but hyperinflation is very scarce. That, that doesn't happen very often. But superinflation, where you get... Uh, inflation rates of, of, of 10%, that, that's happening in a lot of countries. And once more and more investors are starting to sell bonds, exchange bonds and buy all the government can't print, then um, you don't have much time. So then you really need to start planning how, how, how we can save the system. Um, so another um, a, a, another thing to watch is when institutional investors are starting to sell uh, sovereign bonds. And um, of course, we all know after a decrease of interest rates for over 40 years, uh, that there's not much money to be made uh, to invest if you're a long-term investor in bonds. So we've seen the first pension funds also here in the Netherlands who start to sell some of their bond position, bond holdings, and exchange um, these positions into equities or even physical gold, as we've seen with one of the pension funds here in the Netherlands. So these are all signs that the stress is getting really uh, serious. Uh, and um, it, it's not a problem for the system when one or two percent is starting to flu flee out of bonds. But as soon as five or 10 percent of the investors are starting to follow that, 
then you have a real serious uh, crisis right away. Mm. Willem, I know a pivotal moment for you is 1971 when the U.S. went off the gold standard. And then in the decade following that, as you correctly note, the U.S. had very high levels of inflation, ultimately leading to the, the Fed chair, Paul Volcker, jacking up interest rates to as high as 20% on the, the overnight Fed funds rate. And and that sort of... Ha- Just like Russia nowadays, Central Bank of Russia <laughs> raised rates to 20% yesterday. Yes, yes. Great. We'll, we'll, get, we'll get into that. So, so in the fiat world, sort of the... The anchor, the 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 um, the anchor. Instead of being gold, it's sort of central bankers ra- raising rates. Uh, do you think that that has worked over, let's say, the past fifty years since we went off gold? Now that you know, fifty-one year anniversary, or uh, do you think it's highly flawed and and getting more flawed? Well, when we had this crisis in the nineteen seventies, and it was after taking the dollar off the gold standards in nineteen seventy-one, we had this era, this decade of inflation and also debasement of currency. And of course, gold was revaluing because of the market forces. And then the crisis was so, so large. There was really a, 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 a distrust around the, the dollar system. So something had to be done. And then Paul Volcker, he jacked up the rates uh, to, to, to 20%. What was it in June 1981? And, 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 and uh, by doing that, he saved the dollar, he saved the current financial system. And then rates have been coming down ever since. But now it's impossible to raise rates again to levels uh, near 10% or even higher because the mountain of debt is so enormous that the only way to uh, to not implode the system and to service all these debts is to have interest rates close to zero. But now the inflation is picking up and, and they're discussing whether they should raise rates for with a quarter or half a percent. They should discuss uh, if, if rates would need to go up four or five percent, but that's impossible. So in a way, um, the central bankers are trapped and um, a, a quite well-known Dutch central banker, Lex Hoogedaan, who, who left the Dutch central bank and is quite open now, you can follow him on, on Twitter, he stated this uh, perfectly clear, you know, the, the, the central bankers are, are, are trapped. And, and that's, of, of course, a very, very serious situation. Mm. And uh, you've noted that you think the gold price has been suppressed. And you, you talk just now about how you think in the big reset, gold will be revalued to its proper market value. What do you think the proper market value for gold is? Well, we you can calculate that uh, by going back in time. And um, there's a wonderful graph I often show in presentations. And then I show the increase of the money supply over the last 100, 150 years. And the other line shows uh, the value of gold. And the value of gold always goes back to the amount of money created. But it always jumps. Uh, it, it doesn't follow the money creation uh, in a constant way. But it always jumps much higher once in the 30 or 40 years. We've seen it in the 70s. We've seen it in the 30s, 1930s. And if you calculate the potential level of where gold price should rise to keep up with the growing uh, amount of money being created, uh, you get numbers of around uh, $10,000 pounds, 15 or even $20,000 pounds. That sounds ridiculous, but now we're around $2,000 pounds. So it's only 5x. And um, if you look at the 1970s, um, the 1970s started with a gold 
uh, price of around $35 per ounce, and, and it ended with over $800 per ounce. So there was 20x. So these kind of changes uh, can, can happen, but they often happen over a short period of time. And I wouldn't be surprised to see the real, um, the real, um, the real move upwards for gold once central bankers decide to revalue gold. So this could happen um, overnight. We could have a uh, a meeting, emergency meeting of let's say the central bankers of the G20 on, on a Sunday. Uh, afternoon and they could decide and, and make public that from the start of trading on Monday they are buyers of gold and they will pay ten thousand dollars for every ounce and um, we've seen that in the past um, so it, it has been uh, it ha monetary resets like this have been done in the past and we expect one in the future but we could also see uh, um, um, some 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 other um, um, resets. So it, it, a gold revaluation is only one of the possible uh, moves they they still uh, can make. Hmm. Willem, what happens to non-monetary commodities? So not gold, not even silver. Although you know, what role silver plays in the great in the big reset? Uh, um, perhaps we can talk as well. But what about oil, palladium? You say platinum, aluminum, natural gas. What happens to these key commodities? You know, they're not going to be used by central banks as collateral, but they are priced in dollars. And if the dollar is devalued, you know, what happens to their price? Well, we see it happening today. We see it happening this week. We had this huge crisis in Ukraine starting uh, the dollar was start, uh, the war um, uh, started last week. And since the start of this war, we've seen almost every day all, all commodities going up in price. Um, you have the precious metals. You have the monetary metals, gold and silver are the monetary metals. Platinum and palladium are not monetary metals, but are precious metals. The rise in the price of palladium is enormous because lot, uh, I think 40% of all palladium comes from Russia. But what we see now, and that, that's, I think, more, much more important, we see a rise of commodity prices um, everywhere. The soft commodities are going up, the wheats and the grains. And this clearly points to investors fleeing to all the government can't print. And when real estate goes up, stocks go up, commodities go up, when everything goes up in price, you should come to the conclusion that money is going down. The value of money is going down. And, and, and this is um, not understood by, by many. So people <laughs> talk about inflation, People talk about price going up, but they don't talk about the debasement of the currency. They don't uh, discuss the value of, of money going down in, in a way which is which is really getting scary. Mm. Yeah, as you say, you said the big reset, it requires cooperation between major G20 trading partners. We're seeing the exact opposite today, whereas where the U.S. and many Western European countries are imposing uh, sanctions on Russia, are excluding sanction, uh, Russia from the SWIFT system, which is very necessary to conduct large uh, transnational bank settlement payments. Uh, so is this more of a hindrance to the big reset or a catalyst? Because I can see it sort of both ways, because the, dollar, the US dollar, the, uh, you know, using the dollar as sort of a weapon could turn nations away from the dollar, right? That's where the big risk is, and that's where we are now. 
And that's why the position of China is so uh, incredible, important, because it's not, it, it's not about Putin. It's about will China support Putin? Uh, because if, if, if Russia and China will keep um, acting in harmony, like they've done in the, in the last few years, um, both of them have stopped buying U.S. treasuries. Both of them have been adding a huge amount of physical gold. So both of them are clearly preparing for the next phase of the monetary system, where the dollar is no longer the anchor of the monetary system. So if, if, if China chooses to support Russia, we things will get very, very tense very, very, very soon. Well, you know, we in the Western, especially you guys in, in the US, not being personal, yeah, 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 sure. you, you, you know, you love sanctions and, and you've been using the dollar as a weapon and you've been using the financial system as a weapon and you've been using SWIFT as a weapon, you know, Iran was once kicked out of SWIFT, but people should understand that if you punish a part of the world time and again with your currency, they will start building their own system and they will start to reject, reject your currency. And, and if, if you study the analysis coming from China, Russia, and also the Middle East, they understand this very well. They understand very well how the US has been playing them for decades. And that's why the IMF can't get any real business done in Africa or Latin America because these countries, you know, they're, they're fed up with the US-centered IMF and World Bank. So they, they look towards China now to get financing. So we're in a really um, difficult situation now because the, the compromise uh, is, is, is getting harder and harder to reach. And we need the, we need the cooperation with the two sides to... to to be successful in, in any reset. So um, it's, it's, it's not getting any easier now. Obviously, no one knows how this is going to play out between Russia and Ukraine. No one has a crystal ball. But how? what do you see as the probabilities in terms of whether a resolution is reached, uh, you know, the impact on the dollar, impact on commodities, particularly uh, wheat, you know, where you know, Ukraine and Russia create create they produce 25 percent of the, the world's wheat production aluminum palladium sort of how do you see this playing out uh, the, the only thing possible for putin in 2014 2015 was to reach out to china and the chinese said well we'll, we'll help you so the us um made his uh, made their own enemy in, in in that respect and 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 now uh, by pushing the Ukraine towards NATO and being a member of the EU, um, they they really pushed Putin in a corner, and 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 Putin is getting um, he Putin really wanted to take revenge because of all of this. Um, Putin is behaving in a way which is very dangerous now because um, he acts like a man who has not much to lose. And, and now the whole world comes together to punish Russia in a way that they will lose it all. <laughs> I think if, if you have a bear cornered and the bear is wounded and he has only one button to push, it's, it's getting <laughs> very scary. So um, 
I, I get this feeling that everybody is happy now that we're, we're killing Russia in a financial economic way, but, but uh, don't forget uh, Putin, um, something has to give, Putin is still around and he's not a guy who will throw in the towel. Because of all these sanctions, um, the Russian economy uh, should collapse uh, severely and uh, everybody is, is waiting to see what will happen next. But the repercussions for many of the commodity and metal markets will be, will be quite large. Because if you look at the production of palladium, uh, nickel, but also other metals and uh, also soft commodities, there's a huge amount of uh, soft commodities being produced by Russia and, and also the Ukraine. And, and many commodity markets have been stressed for quite some time now. So we see production deficits in quite a number of markets, palladium being one of them. Well, 40% of palladium production uh, can't be exported anymore. <laughs> um, you will have really um, a number of uh, companies starting to panic because they, they, they simply need this product. Mm. Uh, Willem, I know you've done a, a lot of work on energy markets. You've written two books on the subject. Of course, the last decade was a decade of extremely low energy prices, extremely low metals, very commodity prices across the board were quite low. Uh, can you tell us perhaps why do you think that the next decade will be different and, and how drastic um, do you think it will be? You know, How high do you think oil and natural gas could be? And also, uh, sorry, I know I'm throwing a lot of questions at you, but is you know a high oil price, is that actually good for electrification because it, it, it stimulates people to get electric vehicles and the like? Yeah, well, uh, when I f wrote my first book on, on oil and energy, that was in 2007, 2008. And in that book, we predicted that we would need to have a worldwide revolution towards alternatives because you, you, could, you could predict that um, um, one day in the not too distant future, you would see a, a, a top in the production of, of cheap oil especially cheap oil, there's quite a bit of gas, um, especially in, in Russia. Um, but even without the crisis in Russia and Ukraine, it was quite clear that um, the, um, uh, the, the oil and gas markets would be quite, uh, quite stressed, especially oil. So oil was going up towards $100 um, also, without this crisis, now we have this crisis. Don't forget, Russia is responsible for almost 10% of world oil production. So when Russia can't export this to the West because of all the sanctions, um, that, there will be a supply shock. Uh, many predicted in this supply shock, uh, oil could go up towards $150, $200. Um, and, and this will have a huge effect on the inflation. So... Uh, actually, it's the perfect storm. It all comes together. So even without the crisis around Ukraine, we would see very, um, very high uh, energy prices. And now we'll get this extra push, uh, pushing inflation up quite a bit more, uh, causing more debasement of currencies. And, and don't forget that many governments are now pushed towards giving more subsidies because people can't afford uh, energy any longer, so this will give another this will give another push to the currency debasement and the inflation. So we we're reaching this spiral, which could very well uh, turn into a spiral which gets out of control, uh, and that, that's and that's 
when things really get uh, get messy. Mm. And can you speak to the level of the energy crisis in Europe? Perhaps people in the States, people elsewhere in the world, they may have heard of elevated energy prices, but just how high are the prices? Uh, and then also, I actually think that the natural gas price that everyone quotes, TTF, it actually, is it in, is it in the Netherlands? Um, and, you know, it's getting to very, very high levels. To what degree is that you know, causing serious economic damage uh, in Europe? Well, uh, taxes on energy are much higher in Europe than in the US. So if you look at petrol prices, you know, we love to go to the US because there we can drive the big cars and hardly pay any uh, serious money to fill it up. But here in the West, here in Western Europe, energy prices have always been quite high, especially because of all the high taxes. But to give you an example, we have a trader who's working uh, behind me. He's just out now. <laughs> but uh, his energy... Uh, bill has has doubled in the last few months. Uh, I have a co-fund manager. His energy bill tripled in the last 12 months. Uh, and these are guys who can still pay their bills. But if, if you look at all the uh, people who have lower incomes, uh, they really need support now uh, or they, they, they can't pay their energy bills any longer. So th this is a huge crisis in itself. And because of the Ukraine crisis, prices are starting to move up even more. So this is a huge uh, social crisis. Uh, and, um, and, and we are a rich country, you know, the Netherlands. Imagine what this will do with the people in countries like the Ukraine or the Eastern Europe, where the standard of living is, is, is much lower. And here we can have subsidies from the government. But there are many countries, and think about Africa or Asia, where people can't get subsidies. So th this is this is really um, killing um, also uh, the purchasing power of many, many, many ordinary people. So this will be um, also a drag on the economy and the, the growth of the economy. So so many, so many problems come together now. Yeah, the United States is an energy superpower, uh, you know, producing almost twice as much energy yeah. as, it, as it did only a few decades ago. But uh, Europe really is a big importer of energy. And as you say, it re relies on Russia for oil and natural gas. Do you think that the sanctions will target uh, uh, the oil and natural gas from Russia? And if so, I mean, how, how high do you think prices could go for, for let's say, a barrel of oil? Brent? Well, there was this discussion whether we should use, uh, whether we should disconnect Russia from SWIFT uh, for 100%. And there was a very strong um, call from, uh, for example, Germany not to do that because, you know, they're just too reliable on not only oil and gas, but half of the coal. Um, Germany uses a lot of coal for their electricity. You know, they just shut off, shut, uh, shut off a few of their nuclear plants January 1st this year. Now they start about uh, um, um, doing a 180 degrees um, uh, flip on their energy policy and they think about restarting their nuclear plants, uh, which would be a, a great idea, but they still need the coal, they still need the gas and oil from Russia. But with the current sanctions, the level of sanctions, maybe the, uh, Russia isn't disconnected from SWIFT for 100%, but it's disconnected for 80%. I, I think this will have huge repercussions for the amount of energy which Russia can deliver. And, and this, is not, this is not Putin's choice. Uh, you know, Putin always 
um, uh, wanted to uh, deliver as much oil and gas as the West needed. But there's an atmosphere here now also in the Netherlands in which people say we don't want to send any money to Russia any longer. But, but nobody is talking uh, about how we, can, um, how we can solve our energy crisis um, without Russia in the next decades. You know, you just can't switch Russia off when they were responsible for almost half of all your energy needs. And people, people and that's, that, this has been a big problem in the energy um, trans, transition in the last 10 years. People discuss energy in a way like we have the luxury to choose whether we have oil and gas or we have alternatives like wind and solar. But from our analysis already in 2007, 2008, we learned that we need all the energy we can, we can get. We need oil, gas, nuclear, we need solar, wind, we need it all. <laughs> Um, and, and people think um, way too lightly about uh, about uh, how the energy uh, situation um, ca can be changed. It is it's a very it's a very diff it's a very difficult situation. Is the world greening its energy? Is it is it investing sufficiently in wind and solar? Uh, is it putting enough money in that? And also, what role does nuclear play in the greening of the of, of the economy? Well, um, nuclear is, is the only form of energy which is uh, CO, CO2 uh, neutral. So there's, uh, it's one of the cheap and easy ways to um, have enough, uh, enough electricity, especially here in Europe. Um, not many uh, people in the US understand, but in Western Europe, um, during our autumn, we can have three, four weeks in a row when we have fog and no wind. So imagine you're in November, October, November, for weeks with fog, no wind, no sun. You can't rely on alternatives. So that's why nuclear energy needs to be part of your energy mix. And even the politicians uh, in Brussels of the European Commission agree now, and even the Green parties are starting to change their opinion now about nuclear energy. So nuclear energy will see a, a huge revival uh, because we, we simply, we don't have the luxury to choose which form of energy we will, we we would like to 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 use, and um, if we look at the alternatives, of course it's possible to really uh, invest a lot more into wind and solar parks. But you know, solar parks are wonderful in the Middle East, <laughs> uh, but um, it's it's less efficient in in, in Northern Europe. And of course, we can build a lot of windmills. But if you look at the windmills, you know they, they, you, you don't, um, you can't build windmills which will be there for the next one hundred years. These things uh, need to be replaced. Uh, that we need a lot of commodities to build these machines. We need a lot of copper. So in the whole energy transformation, we as investors in commodities, we, we study which metals will be needed most. And if you look from an investment perspective, we'll need an awful lot of copper, we'll need an awful lot of nickel, uh, and lithium and cobalt. And there simply aren't enough discoveries being made in this for these metals. There simply isn't enough uh, investment, there aren't enough investments available to do exploration. 
we, we, we invest a lot of our money into exploration, but one, we're one of the few. So governments don't support any uh, exploration efforts. And I think we will learn in the next decades that there will be a shortage for many, many materials and metals needed for this energy transformation. And what are the knock-on effects where the transition needs all these commodities, but the current economy is just not producing enough of them? You know, I guess the price would go up, but what oh, are the well, knock-on effects of that? That's why we started the fund. That's why, you know, I hate to say it, this is an awful situation. But, you know, it's good for our fund. It's good for our investors. Uh, we were up uh, in February 5-6% while everybody was down. So when there's a shortage in uh, metals and materials and when, when there are production deficits, the price of commodities is going higher and people will fight for the last available and still undeveloped mining projects. And we had four takeovers in our portfolio just in the first two months of this year. Normally we have five or six a year. So there's a scramble ongoing, and you can also see that if you study the behavior of Rio Tinto and BHP, you know, the large mining giants, they're entering markets now in which they weren't comf comfortable to operate a few years ago. They started to invest in Argentina again. They start to invest in the Yukon, in the Arctic parts of Canada, um, where you have these large low-grade uh, deposits. So um, they understand the situation. They understand that they need to act now. Uh, but, but I think investors in, in commodities will do very well in the next decades with the debasement of currencies, the shortages happening. Um, I, I think that, that that will be the perfect storm. Let's talk about, about Bitcoin. Uh, you know, your book, The Big Reset, in 2014, you envisioned a scenario where currencies would be pegged to gold. It would be a return there. That was published in 2014. Uh, what were your thoughts on Bitcoin at the time? And how did you sort of learn about Bitcoin? And how did your thinking about gold shape your thinking about, about Bitcoin? I was tipped about Bitcoin very early on, I think 2011. And people said, study it because that's an interesting new form of money. But I was just too busy building my own companies. I had two companies. I also had a billion webshop. And I, I was thinking about uh, Bitcoin and I thought it could be a form of digital gold. I actually, in the big reset, I, call, I named it digital gold in 2014, but I was stupid enough not to, not to invest in it myself. Um, I, I, I uh, corrected that mistake in 2018 and put 5% of my net worth in Bitcoin. Uh, and I think Bitcoin is, is, is a way, just like gold and silver, to hedge yourself against the madness in this fiat money system. Because uh, as you might know, um, uh, the amount of Bitcoins which, which can ever be mined is, is, uh, is set on 20, 21 million Bitcoin. So that's the strongest currency on earth now, because even gold and silver, we can, we can find new gold and silver deposits, we can grow the reserves, but with Bitcoin, it's fixed to 21 million units. And more and more people are starting to wake up to that fact. And I've been, uh, I've been adding to my Bitcoin positions. And what I see a lot with our high net worth investors, we have almost 2,000 high net worth investors. And more, more and more of them are yeah, changing their portfolio, getting rid of bonds uh, and start to invest in alternatives, which are getting scarcer and scarcer. And of course, gold and silver have been 
the, the hard assets of choice for thousands of years. But now more and more, even the boomer generation, more and more high net worth um, uh, people are, 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 are starting to put a few percent, five or ten percent of their money into Bitcoin. And, and because of the supply of Bitcoin, uh, 19 million out of the 21 million Bitcoin have been mined already. I think 60 or 70 percent of these coins are, are in cold storage and are not available uh, only for much higher prices. I can envision Bitcoin to go up another 10x. Time horizons are so tough, but when you see it going to 10x, which would, I don't know, be 400,000 or something like that, what, uh, how soon do you see that happening? Is that a five to 10 year view or is that you know, more of a, a sooner thing? If you study the uh, boom-bust cycles of Bitcoin, uh, which, which are classic, if they, it goes up 10, 20, 30, 40 X, and then goes down 70 to 90%, and then you have another run. Uh, it's my opinion that currently we're at the end of a mid-cycle correction. So we had this huge run uh, from three, 4,000 towards 70,000. Now we had this mid-cycle correction which um, uh, in which uh, Bitcoin came down to almost 30K. And in the if this is a mid-cycle correction, the second part of this bull market, which started in 2019, will bring um, Bitcoin, could easily bring Bitcoin to two, 300,000. And then we'll we might have another correction cycle. And in the next phase, and that could be, four, five years out, I could well envision Bitcoin uh, getting a value of um, over half a million or maybe even a million. Because if the money printing will continue, and, and that's guaranteed, um, um, there will be more and more money which will start fleeing to um, all the hard assets the government can't print. And there are very few around. You have gold and silver. Silver is a very small market. We haven't spoken about silver. Um, the total amount of physical silver being mined yearly is less than 30 billion, 30 billion dollars a year. All silver being mined. You know, that's, that amount of money is being created by the ECB in just one month. And, and if you look at the, how small the markets are, like Bitcoin and silver, gold is a little larger. Uh, but if you look at platinum, palladium, uranium, these are very small markets. These are markets of 5, 10, 20 billion a year. And if you have 300,000 billion uh, of, 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 uh, of fiat money looking for value, uh, there's so much money around, there's almost... 100 trillion in real estate, there's 100 trillion in bonds, there's 100 trillion in stocks. And all the alternative markets are very small. And once people, people, more and more people start to understand these risks and start to flee, you can get huge moves. And you don't think it will be added? There are some folks, as, as you know, Willem, who believe that you know, central banks will adopt Bitcoin as a global reserve asset. I don't think I, I see that happening within the next 10 years. And it sounds like you don't either. Bitcoin is plan B. So if you're responsible for plan A being the current monetary system, how stupid will it be <laughs> to invest in plan B? Because if you invest in plan B, you kill plan A. <laughs> so this is a very smart move for one central bank in a small country like El Salvador. But it will be a crazy move when G20 countries will start to move that way. Because you kill your own system. 
And that's why so much pressure is being applied now on El Salvador. Look what IMF is saying. Look what US is saying. You know, they're pressing El Salvador to stop this flight to Bitcoin because it's a very smart idea for one country, but it's, it's a huge risk for the system. And this is understood by many of the richest guys in the world. And they, 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 they know that they need to do what El Salvador is doing, flee to plan B. But Bitcoin can, always, can only be a winner when um, the current system would totally collapse and then Bitcoin would uh, be the best hard currency available. But central bankers, they know that they can change the system. And that's the whole thesis of the big reset. So central bankers can always avoid a total collapse of the monetary system by bringing gold back into the system, which they all own. And that's also the reason why Russia and China were allowed to build huge physical gold reserves, because China has been very has made this point very clear to the US after the Lehman crash. We will only support the current dollar system when you allow us to build a physical gold position as large as the EU and the US has. And now they all have this large physical gold position, so they all can benefit from a gold revaluation. And that's, that's, that's the way they can always bring back trust into the system. So Bitcoin is very valuable for individual uh, countries, but you will only see uh, countries like El Salvador adding Bitcoin to the balance sheet. You won't see uh, countries like France or Germany or the US adding Bitcoin to their uh, central bank balance sheets because they, they, then they need to throw in the towel. <laughs> but I think... There's one, there's one huge fight, one last huge fight in, in, in the monetary system, and that's the fight between fiat and, 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 and Bitcoin. Uh, and that's central bankers understand this, and they, they, they try to build their own central bank digital currencies now in a way that they can spin these currencies to get people... Um, uh, to, to invest more and more of their money in the central bank digital currencies and to forget about Bitcoin. But I think that won't work because the more central bank digital currencies which will be created is just another layer on top of this fiat money system. So the more central bank digital currencies will be created, the more smart money will flee towards Bitcoin. And you could even reach a point in which the G20 countries will decide that it's not... Uh, it's no longer allowed to exchange your Bitcoin to fiat currency. So you can close the on and off ramps. And we've seen some of the first signs of that developing. If you have a, a bank account here in the Netherlands as a company, so not an individual account, but a company account, there are a few banks here in the Netherlands who don't allow you to make any uh, payments to uh, exchanges uh, if you want to um, uh, to buy Bitcoin. Well, my final question for you is is the following. It's been great to hear your analysis of the big reset, reset which is a long-term thesis. What would have to happen in the world, something that you see that would 
uh, you know, make you think it again, make you say, actually, there was the conditions for the big reset, but now there's this new phenomenon, so it's either less likely, or I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna turn, I have to think of a new thesis because, um, you know, this, this new thing happened. Um, I was speaking about um, us being in the financial endgame for the first time, I think, in 2011, and then I started to uh, think more and more about the problems in the. Uh, international financial system. Almost all of my books were about the problems in world's financial system and 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 the um, and the financial crisis, uh, which started in two thousand and eight. And I was always asked, "What? But what's the solution?" And in the first few years, I always said, "I don't have a solution. You know, I, I'm I'm just I'm very glad that I see the problems and can analyze the problems." But as I learn more and more about how central bankers. Uh, um, plan and work and what they've done in the past, I became more and more certain around 2012, 2013, that there would be a way out of this great financial crisis. And that's why I started to work on the big reset. And once I um, had enough confidence to publish the big reset, because I was quite sure that around 2020, we would need to have these big changes I started to look for all the signs that they were working on this reset. And when um, Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum published his The Great Reset in 2020, a few months after the COVID crash, uh, it became very clear that the elite, uh, the, powers, uh, um, uh, the power structures in this world are working actively on reset plans. So I'm more convinced than ever that a reset is needed. And what's happening now in Ukraine and, and around Russia, it, it even convinces me more. So um, the idea that we, we, can, um, we can go back to a very stable financial system without any inflation, without any serious crisis, that's just, that's, there's zero chance that that can happen. Mm. We need to have big changes in, into this world financial system, world monetary system. It has been done in the past. It can be done again, but we need to cooperate and we need Asia to be part of it. We need China to be part of it. And we even need to be Russia to be part of it. So um, it will be an interesting um, few few months or few years. It, it definitely will be. Um, Willem, it's been fantastic having you on my podcast. Where can people, if they want to learn more about your work, where, where can they um, find your work, uh, find what, what you're doing these days? Um, yeah, they can go to our website, Commodity Discovery Fund, uh, cdfund.com. Um, people can download the Big Reset for free on that website. So that, that can be of any help. Um, and I'm very active on Twitter. So just Google my name. Uh, it's W Middlecope, but just Google my name and Twitter, you'll find, find me there. Well, Willem, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure having you on Forward Guidance. Thanks.